You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Earn and Invest, where we have the conversations that help you earn and invest in your future so you can make the right decisions today. I'm your host, Doc G, and today we're going to talk about family values at risk. According to J.R. Gondek and Vanessa Martinez, when we hear the word wealth, many of us think about money. But wealth is about so much more than that. All of the aspects of our lives that matter most to us, our family, our legacy, our community, the causes we care deeply about, contribute to our wealth and the richness of our life. Together, they compose our family value. If we are only managing our family's money, however, our family value is at risk. Current financial advice often focuses on returns and rarely puts those returns into the context of unique goals, family history, and legacy that a person or multiple generations of a family are trying to achieve. This key concept is at the basis of J.R. Gondek and Vanessa Martinez's recent book, Family Value at Risk, Inclusive Communications to Pass on Your Family's Wealth and Legacy. Rooted in the knowledge that there is way more to wealth beyond one's ROI, J.R. and Vanessa work with families to ensure their financial plans reflect and protect their family value. Furthermore, their strategy is not only holistic, it's also inclusive. They prioritize the perspectives and needs of all family members, including matriarchs, individuals who are often overlooked by more traditional advisors. As a result, they are able to help families maintain their overall wealth and their value for generations to come. Jer Gondek grew up in rural Wisconsin. He attended Marquette University, where he received his Bachelor of Science degree in finance. He later obtained his MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. As a partner and managing director with the Learner Group, JR works with families to promote intentional communication and drive collaboration between all generations. Vanessa Martinez was born and raised in Chicago. Shortly after graduating high school, Vanessa moved to Guatemala to complete her undergrad. Upon returning to Chicago, Vanessa completed her MBA from North Park University. As a partner and managing director of the Learner Group, Vanessa's primary focus is guiding families through all aspects of their wealth. Hi, this is J.R. Gondek. This is Vanessa Martinez on the Earn and Invest podcast. Mommy, what happens if you die? It was a question that I asked my mother a few months after my father died unexpectedly when I was eight years old. And just like any other eight-year-old, I was worried about my future. What would happen if not only my dad, but my mom died too? Where would I live? Who would I live with? What would I live on? There were questions that my mother was so full of grief still, she hadn't had the time to ask herself. And it was the beginning of 
her estate planning journey, a journey that proved to be very important for our family. And so I'd ask you the same question. What about your family? Are you ignoring the worst case scenario? Are you putting your family values as well as financial well-being at risk? J.R. Gondek and Vanessa Martinez are partners and managing directors at The Learner Group, a wealth management firm dedicated to enhancing all areas of a client's financial life. They work with families to find solutions to complex problems, deepen relations between generations, and create lasting legacies. Their book is Family Values at Risk, Inclusive Communication to Pass on Your Family's Wealth and Legacy. J.R. and Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Vanessa, let me start with you. Why did you name the book and process FVR, Family Value at Risk? Why not Family Wealth at Risk? Mainly because too many people believe that wealth ties specifically to dollars. So value is perception. So if we are able to relay that to people and explain that wealth is more than just money, I felt using that word was something that we both agreed was an easier way to explain it than tying it to wealth and always having to go that back and forth of, it's not money, it's not just money. Well, let me push you on that idea. So if wealth is not just money, what else is it? That's where values comes in. So it's kind of tying it back to your story. We believe as parents that sometimes it's just on our mind, but don't realize how grown up the brains of our children are in reflecting on things that we do as parents. So if I'm a parent that mainly focuses on dollars every single day, I believe that that's the value and that's the legacy I'm passing on to my children. And even though finance is important, we believe that having your whole estate, those the morals, the beliefs that you have, if you don't have that intentional conversation with your children, they're never going to learn it. It's There's a need to have these conversations, and that is the premise of the book. I want to come back to this idea of having these deeper, multi-generational conversations. But JR, I noticed the book was subtitled Inclusive Communication to Pass on Your Family's Wealth and Legacy. Why did you guys use the term inclusive? That's important. I mean, it's something I, I grew up into the business where it was my experience was man to man. It was a male advisor talking to typically the patriarch of the family. And it was to build up a lot of wealth and money. It was very successful. But then what happened is too many times we would see someone pass away in a family and the affairs were not in order. There was not, wasn't inclusive of both spouses or the next generation. So it was important to us to continue to kind of push the industry forward. And we think inclusive intentional communication really helps facilitate that. I've noticed that you use often in the book the terms matriarch and patriarch. And I think it gets to this idea of inclusivity, not of only just both gender roles, but the generational roles too. Well, not only that, but same with advisors, right? The more balance you have between a male, female advisor helping with the family, because we all think differently. And the more balanced that conversation is within the advisor, within a business and within a family, the higher level you solve for and you get all the issues on the table to really transfer that family legacy onto the following generations. 
Vanessa, talk more about that idea. I mean, you suggest in the book that families should be advised by a team of advisors, including both a male and female. Why is that so important? It is going to be the perception of the person on the other side of the table. But we have seen through experience that in some cases, it could be a man on the other side of the table that prefers to talk to a woman or vice versa, a woman who wants a man or a man who... So if you have both on the other side of the table, why not have both on our side of the table? And it doesn't necessarily tie to the gender, but more so the personality. My personality could be more driven towards, you know, being in order, staying on track. And it could be the opposite where the typical mentality is that a woman is more loving and more caring. And that could be JR in this case. But regardless, what we're trying to do is be able to give that complete sense of value to our, to the families that we work with by having both of us and both of our personalities at that table for them. Let's talk more, JR, about this idea of family planning. When I started my personal finance journey, I started it in the financial independence retire early community, the FIRE community. And some people, at least in that community, kind of argued, well, each generation has to make it on their own. Is there something wrong with that kind of thinking? Well, what the fault we find with that is that's great as you build it up, but if you don't transfer it, some of that early on to the next generation, you, you kind of end up with that shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve mentality where one generation builds it up, the second maintains it, and by the third, it's gone. So what we found is, is more proactive. And again, you could start very small and it could just be with a few dollars and get your either young kids thinking about things with five or $10. Or when you're, you're talking to an older generation, or might be grandchildren or, or kids that you could start with larger amounts relative to, to the small. And you really start to have the conversation through either gift trusts, you know, depending on how you want to control things or not. And we just find as you talk about that with smaller sums, by the time you get to the larger sums, they're much more prepared to avoid that shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. Can you imagine being handed randomly $3 million when you're the age of 60, not knowing it existed, maybe in certain parts of your life struggling really hard. And because that lack of communication existed, you were never able to share with your parents that you needed it. And because of their lack of understanding that it was okay to share a little bit, that they they didn't give it to you. They didn't talk to you about it. And now you're 60, you get $3 million. What do you do with it? You don't know. If you've never been taught the level of responsibility of having $3 million at a young age, it makes it so much more difficult to start at 60. JR, what Vanessa is talking about is this idea that we pass on more than just quote unquote wealth or money, but there's a cultural aspect to protecting family values, which maybe the traditional approach doesn't always acknowledge. Yeah, and, and there's other ways to, to think about too, because it isn't just about the money. It could be a charitable intent with the family and just helping to, to drive home that, sure, we're successful as a family. But you want to care about other causes or other humans that are out there or, or things like that. So, you know, thinking about sort of the three bucket approach, 
one bucket to save, one bucket to spend, and one to give away. Simple things like that are very helpful, especially with, with younger children. I do that with my kids, and I, I think it's a, a good approach. So, Vanessa, tell me why the family value at risk approach, how does that differ kind of from the traditional financial advising and estate planning uh, that we see out there in the world today? The difference that we have slowly incorporated, and I say slowly, slowly just because it takes a few years to embrace it because of the old mentality of straight investments, is that we have an in-house estate planning slash CPA on staff. That means if you have a quick question that you're going to ask me, I can run right over to his office, knock on his door real quick and be like, hey, this is what's going on. And because we understand your estate plan already, right? Because that's part of the flow. Then it's if you're going to buy a house, we'll let you know what our recommendation is on how to title it. If you're going to sell your business, we'll help you with pre-liquidity events that will ha- that need to happen ahead of time. I feel too many times we think that we have to control everything. So we'll have everyone in separate locations. And what we like to do is be the coordinator. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use the person we have here because honestly, he's here just for a review. He's here to help give that guidance for then you to go with your attorney, but we help with that coordination. Because can you imagine I tell you in the investment terminology, can you make sure you have long-term gains, but you have short-term this, and when you sold that property, you did your 1035 exchange, and can you, you're going to tell me, okay, let me write everything down and talk to my CPA. And then when you sit down with your CPA, you read off the list, and he was like, well, you did this time, but you didn't last time, and there's five of those and two of these. And then you're like, oh man, Vanessa, now I'm coming back to you. He said, So all we're doing is having you be a middleman. We cut out the middleman. You can definitely listen in because we believe you being more educated in this whole process makes it so much better, but we're here to help. And to help means that coordinator for you. That's the difference. And then on top of it is just overcoming decision-making paralysis is what we talk about because a lot of times you think about your estate plan or your financial plan and it's overwhelming. You just want to put it off till tomorrow and keep pushing it out, pushing it down. And we just like to bring it down to whether it's a simple one page net worth statement or the four things you need to decide when putting a will together or a trust. Because then it really can simplify it and get you to making a decision as opposed to pushing it off. And we like to kind of build that into the process as well. We're going to talk about decisions such as will or trust in a moment, Vanessa, but you know, it brings up this idea. It's really hard to get people to estate plan. And often we find that people have all these documents that they finally get prepared and never sign. It's this idea of the decision paralysis that they can't kind of make that last step uh, that I imagine is very common, especially when you don't have all of your advisors working together. I think sharing stories like the one you shared with us, which I think is very important for those listening right now to really take that to heart, to know that kids do think these thoughts. That's why as a parent, that decision paralysis exists. But when I hear stories like that, it just pushes me forward. And that's what we try to do with the families that we work with. 
let me share a couple stories of circumstances that have happened when people don't take the time to just sign that document. You've already made the decisions. You've already signed the guardians for your children. Just sign the paper because the wonderful part of estate planning is you can change it tomorrow. I think that's what people get scared of, that they're signing like this legal contract that it's like in gold and engraved. It's broken. No, that's not true. We can change it. We can change anything. Divorce happens. Death happens. Millions of things happen in life. Just be prepared today and we'll look out into the future together. Now, JR, let me be a little bit of a naysayer. I hear this talk of sharing stories, et cetera, but I could see a client coming to you and saying, look, I want high returns and low fees. Why is that the wrong approach? Well, we talk about two concepts, the investment return and the wealth return. The investment return is, is what you're articulating. It's great to have a lot of money and make more on that. But if you're not focused on the overall wealth return, which is how it's titled, how it all fits together, you could cancel out a lot of those good results through taxes and poor planning. So it's it's a component of that, but it's educating. It took me a while personally to, to see that and embrace that because that was how I was brought up in the industry. Let's maximize return and see where the portfolio and our families have good guidance outside between their estate planning and CPAs. We need to just maximize return. But then when you see that the low hanging fruit that's out there on the wealth return, it's so much greater than purely the investment return. So Vanessa, as I was reading Family Value at Risk, I noticed that you kind of separated three buckets. One is estate planning, the other is assets, and the last is legacy. Why did you feel like you had to separate things in such a way? Maybe because my brain like makes that little sections and buckets, but I think taking piece by piece is easier to digest, not necessarily because they don't tie together, because that's the purpose of putting all three of them in the book, showing everyone that you can't have one without the other. Because if you do, the consequence is, oh, wait, turn the page, read the next chapter, finding out what happens here. And wait, last but not least, because of course, at least personally, the most important one to me is the legacy, right? those values, that heart to heart that you have with your kids truly makes it worthwhile. All the sacrifices we do as parents day in and day out to build this this life of, I don't want to just be about money. I want my kids to see that I'm helping other people. That's what makes me happy. When I come home and my daughter says, oh, today in school, we were talking about what I want to be when I grow up. And then I was like, oh, great. And what did you decide? And then she was like, I want to be like you, mommy. And I was like, that's wonderful. <laughs> but I was like, but what do you want? And she was like, help families. That's what you say you do. You help families every day. And that's what I want her to know, right? I don't want her to think, oh, because you told them to buy this stock instead of that stock. That isn't what she should have in her mind. She should have in her mind knowing that I'm helping other families. And she does. I know I have to continue to, you know, push that through year over year. It's not just one spur of the moment. And I feel too many families believe that. And we've had that conversation, exactly what you said. 
but the family will come down and they're like, yeah, my family knows. Honesty. That's key to my family. All of them know that. And I'm like, do they? If I ask them right now, would they say that your family legacy statement is embraced all around honesty? And they're like, yeah, I think so. And then they'll talk to each other, be like, do they? Would they? Or is it this? Or is it that? I feel having that one statement that helps unite the family, one front, (laughs) I feel that's beneficial. JR, I was going to talk a lot about estate planning and assets, but certainly as Vanessa brings up, is legacy the key that we miss in traditional planning? I mean, do families not incorporate enough legacy into their plans? It's a shame because so many times the stories are lost, right? you, You don't we hear them all the time from our families. And the follow-up question is, have you shared these with your kids and grandkids? And many times what we find is the answer is no. And it's it's just a shame that it's not. So we think passing on that legacy just really builds the first two parts and solidifies that long-term. Vanessa, it's one thing to talk about the matriarch and patriarch, which are often grandparents and maybe even including the kids, the next generation. But do the grandchildren want to really be part of this conversation? And is it important to get even that third generation into the discussion? Yes, and yes. (laughs) And this is a tool that we've shared with our families to be able to do so. So if you're going to tell a story to your children, you're going to say, Tommy, you have a son named Tommy. I just gave you one. (laughs) You sit with him and you say, when you were 18, I was running to your graduation. And that day I received the call from my publisher that the book was ready. So what am I doing there? I'm doing two things. I'm bringing the child into the story, right? Because We forget that sometimes we might like to listen to ourselves talk, but the person on the other side wants to feel part of the story, right? So how do we do that? And we shared this in the book where I share stories of, I tell my daughter, while I was doing this, you were doing this. Do you remember when you were doing this? Yeah, I remember when I was doing that. Well, guess what mommy was doing while you were doing that? So that makes that keep going. And I think it's nice for not just the parents to share with their kids, but if it's the grandparents sharing stories, also including the grandchildren, because they can say when your mom was for your first birthday, your mom made this great cake. And that's when she decided that she was going to open her own bakery. It was a great day for all of us. You were celebrating your birthday. The cake was delicious. We all loved it. That is the kind of story that you share, not just me, me, me. And I was great. And I was wonderful. And I was great. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) So JR, let's move over from legacy and transition to assets. I was reading in your book that you guys steer clients away from index funds, or at least tend to look at individual securities. Why is that? It just gives more flexibility in the, the COVID market period a year ago is a prime example of that. Because when we think about crisis investing, me personally was my third one as I look back at the dot-com, the financial crisis, and then this most recent, is we're so emotional as human beings that 
one of our number one job as an advisor is to have our families look toward their financial plan in the long term. And what market turmoil does is challenge you to really kind of not trust the plan, so to speak. And as we think about, there's two good ways to really hurt yourself on in retirement or on your retirement plan. One's at the top of the market and the other's at the bottom of the market. And both are equally bad. Either at the top of the market, you're chasing a trend that you think is going to go forever and then it reverses quickly, you lose a lot of money or selling out at the bottom thinking that everything is going to kind of go to zero. And both cases are painful. And our experience has been, if we can make some small adjustments when we're in crisis investing and be tax efficient, we've had a lot of success with individual securities to do that. But then more importantly, navigate to not miss out when things recover. And it helps our, our families get over the behavioral nature of wanting to do something at the top or the bottom without really taking apart your retirement plan. So what I'm hearing you say, JR, is that there's no problem long-term with index investing, but in your case, you can overcome some of the emotional aspects and behavioral aspects by having a crisis plan in place, maybe some small things you can move around in a sense, even to help your families feel like they're doing something during during a crisis. Absolutely. Because the other trend you have is even if you, you got nervous during COVID uh, a year ago, and you had an index fund, you had embedded gains. So not only did you sell at maybe a, a bad time, but now you have realized capital gains to pay taxes on. So you, you, you kind of get hit twice. So it's again, if you ride things out in the long run, it'll work out. But again, it's, it's these short-term crisis investing periods that unfortunately we believe are going to be much more of the, the normal any of us would like. Vanessa, let's jump over to asset allocation. We all know this theory that uh, you can break your assets into equities and bonds. And a lot of people have that 60-40 ratio. You guys are suggesting in your book that 70-30 may be more appropriate nowadays. Why is that? Interest rates is the reason. Interest rates are low. So to be able to have yield on your portfolio fixed income, that makes it a little more difficult. That's why we try to lean to more 70-30 because of inflation that comes from this as well. We've seen all the stimulus that's been given out. So to be able to surpass that and maintain your portfolio, you need to have to hedge against inflation. That's why we lean a little more on equities. But as Jair stated before, these equities can be a little different. I think the typical view of an equity is that it's growth, it's risky, and you should be careful. But if you look that there's value equities, right, that there's these equities that do pay a dividend, now you have another option to create that income that you need at retirement. One of the things that I read on your website is that many people believe that they're, they, they have to produce income and that they have to have a certain dollar amount. And if they don't have this dollar amount, that they'll never be able to be okay in retirement. But if we do it backwards, and that's our thought process, you tell me, Doc, how much do you need? You want to live off $100,000, $200,000, $300,000. Then we look at your portfolio and we place those allocations appropriately to be able to produce that income. And once you have that portion, everything else can be used to hedge against inflation. So it could be a little more, let's call it risky, but you have the income you need so you feel safe. JR, Vanessa talked about dividends and 
I have to hold myself from from going there, but I would just throw the question out. You know, a lot of people, there's a big argument about dividends as well as retirement income. And some people look at that as forced liquidation. Are you guys big fans of a dividend strategy? Very big fan because when you study companies over a long period of time, you know, there's ups and downs with individual company performance. But one thing that's very difficult to cheat, so to speak, is cash flow. And you, you can measure that. And it really helps diffuse a lot of the behavior of people to worry about the ups and downs of the market is one of the biggest things we learned from the financial crisis and changed our portfolio strategy and retirement planning forever. Whereas prior to the financial crisis, you'd model out your retirement. You would assume equities would make eight to 10% a year. If you spent four to 6% in retirement, you were okay. And you could stay with the long-term kind of more aggressive portfolio. Fast forward to the bottom of the market, March of 2009, your 6% withdrawal rate, because the equities had fallen more than half, was now 12, 13% and you couldn't sustain it, right? Fast forward to today with either interest on bonds or dividend stocks, you can model out that income and it's very sustainable to allow for the portfolio to, in some sense, work for you so you convert from retirement to the portfolio being your stream of income or employment, if you want to think about it that way. And it's been very effective the last 10 years and even during the COVID last year to help families really get through the ups and downs of the market. Let's take a quick break. Jared Gondek and Vanessa Martinez are authors of the recent book, Family Value at Risk, Inclusive Communication to Pass on Your Family's Wealth and Legacy. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. You know, lately I've been thinking a lot about real estate, and one of my favorite places to go to learn is the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. That's right, Chad Carson, also known as the coach, has two types of episodes that get you up to speed on real estate and how you can use it towards financial independence. The first is one where he, as the expert, tells you all the tips and tricks about how to use this asset class. The second is where he has real-life examples, guests on proof of concept of how you can learn about real estate and cash flow monthly. I highly suggest taking a listen to The Coach. 
It's the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. Check them out at CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com. Take a listen. You won't be sorry. Let me reintroduce you. J.R. Gondek and Vanessa Martinez are managing directors of the Learner Group, where they help guide families through all aspects of wealth and promote intentional communication while driving collaboration between all generations. J.R., I've heard emotionally people feel safer knowing that they're having dividends come in as opposed to liquidating stocks to support themselves. On the other hand, I also buy the argument that in a sense, dividends are a forced liquidation. You're still paying taxes on them. It's decreasing the value of the equities you still hold. The difference being that when you decide to liquidate to pay for something versus awaiting a dividend, you have a little bit more control. On the other hand, I definitely see emotionally how it can feel much safer, this idea of not having to sell during a downturn. And it's a little bit reminiscent when I was in business school, we talked about the the low interest rate. And one story that that I've always remembered is one of my professors in the early 80s, and uh, he's finished his PhD, and the professor told the class, now remember one thing, this this piece of wisdom, never again will interest rates be below 10% in your lifetime. And that was the early 80s. Here we are 30 plus years later at zero, right? So it's at some point, interest rates will be a lot higher. I don't know if they'll go to 10%, but it's the ability to kind of maneuver through those periods of time. And cash flow and dividends, whether it's hedging against inflation, has been a strategy that's tried and true during all these periods of time. Part of my family legacy actually is when my father died in 1980, my mom took the insurance money and interest rates were so high that you were making 14 or 15% on bonds. It was a, a really heady time, one that as an adult, I've never seen interest rates so high. So I can't even imagine what that was like, much less having to get a mortgage or do something like that during those times. But that's definitely part of the stories that have been passed on to me about my financial legacy. Vanessa, let's move over to estate planning. So we talked about kind of those three buckets, assets, legacy, and estate planning. That by far, I believe, is a topic that could take up many podcasts unto itself. But I always hear the same question over and over again. Should I get a will? Do I need a trust? Is there an easy answer to such questions? The answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, period. That's the the easy answer. (laughs) And I guess it's yes, because, but it does depend on what you're trying to get accomplished. Many people believe, well, if you don't have $3 million, what are you doing an estate plan for? But I disagree. You do need it. There are decisions that you've made that you're just putting on paper. That's what an estate plan does for you. Specifically, when you have children, and even more so if you know there's the whole equal versus fair. Are you going to be fair to your children? Or are you going to be equal? It is not the same thing. And do you tell them about it now? Do you just put it in the estate plan? So this is, I think the estate, when you divide the three topics, the estate plan kind of brings the legacy and the assets in one. That's what the estate plan does. It integrates your feelings, your thoughts, your morals and wishes, tying it to the assets you have and how and when and why you want to pass them. That is the purpose of an estate plan. So if you definitely have assets, 
and you have some type of morals and beliefs, you should have the estate plan. Jer, I think most people buy this idea of I should have a estate plan. And most people kind of get the idea, hmm, I probably should have a will. How and when do you si- decide if you need a trust? And is there an easy answer to that question? It, it's more when you think longer term, because accidents happen, right? unfortunately, are part of life. And the, the nice thing about the, the trust is it really tells what Vanessa just said, how you can carry things through, even if you don't have a lot of money necessarily today. But to to change it in the future is great. So a trust sounds complicated, but in essence, it's it's just spelling out your wishes within one document of who you want to take control of your financial life, what ages you want kids to have access to money and those kinds of things. And the other tool that we find is very common are gift trusts for either kids or grandkids saving for college. We think that's a very effective tool. And again, those sound complicated. But we go through a lot of conversations. Is it better for a 529 plan? We tend to find a lot of families the gift trust is the better vehicle for a bunch of different reasons. But again, it sounds more complicated than it ultimately is. So Vanessa, one of the really fun parts of your book is listening to the stories, both positive and negative. Tell us a story about a family that had their values at risk and how they managed it well by doing good estate asset and legacy planning. There's a family in the book. Obviously we had to change the name. So it makes it, (laughs) makes it difficult off the top of my head to remember. I don't remember if it was the Bates. Can't remember what name we gave them in the book, but what this family did was they had their business One, they did inclusive communication. So husband and wife always together in making these decisions. And I adore this family. They're wonderful. And they've been able to pass on their legacy. What I mean by legacy is the style in which they do things. So they had this steel business. They were able to grow it, sell it, do pre-liquidity planning, have all this in their estate. They had five children, and this is the fun part. It's a modern family. So it's three his, two hers, right? So now there's a different dynamic here. And this is why estate planning does help as well, because it doesn't leave a wishy-washy feeling on, do you give more to those? Do you give more to those? Do you divide by five or do you divide in two and then do three quarters, two quarters? So it just really makes you sit down and have the conversation. But one of their pieces, because they are a modern family, is that inclusive approach to his, hers, and their children. Once they had their daughters and they had children or they married and they had modern families, their legacy piece is inclusive to all, which means not bloodline, but all are considered descendants. Right. So that's, I guess, a funny piece to a trust or to an estate plan. If your child is not your legal child, you must state it in the document that this person is part of your descendant. Right. You have to say that there because otherwise the court will look at it and say, okay, well, these are yours. These are his. So if if it passes, it's going to pass this way. So you have to be specific there. But that was something so important to great grandmother now. 
and she's passed it on to her daughters. Her daughters have passed it on to their kids. Their kids are now babies, right? So we're four generations in, but it's nice to have now that they're doing gifting, now that the daughters are doing gifting to their older daughters and they married that way. I always love to double check, right? I don't want to assume. So we're like, okay, well, gifting time. Who are we gifting to? Oh, all my kids. And for them, all my kids means all my kids because they're all mine, regardless if I married this man and his daughters were 15 when we married. They're still my kids. So I love that that was able to transcend through through their whole family. The great-grandmother also wrote a book, which is nice to share with the family, share her stories, what Jared was talking about, that sometimes it's too hard to sit with all of them and share everything. So she wrote a book. And as I remember the story, what is also very gratifying is after the matriarchs and patriarchs of these families die, that their memories and their gifting carries on through the generations, that it gives the younger generations a good chance to understand who their forebears were. Correct. Jer, let's look at the other side of that. Tell me a story of a family that didn't quite plan the way they probably should have, and it came to cause problems for them. Well, here's just an unfortunate, maybe younger generation type of story where there was an accident in the hospital, you know, for a young child and a medical mishap. And there's no estate plan in, in place. Who's thinking about their, their young children and their young family to begin with? And then in, in this case, there's a lawsuit and a judgment. So now there's a large estate for a minor child that's no longer with us, unfortunately. And trying to work through the dynamics of now with the courts and other things that go through, it's just a very difficult situation to work through a guardian all the way till age 18 for the other siblings and those kinds of things on top of the grief of losing a young child. So it's it's just the importance of having that will and estate planning at any level of life because unfortunately life comes unexpected and that was kind of a unfortunate example. I think exactly what you said is the most important piece. When you lose someone, the last thing you want to think about is money. That's the last thing you want. You want to mourn. You want to do nothing, right? Not sit there and call my financial advisor, call my attorney, call the CPA, who should transfer this, who should do that. An estate plan will allow you to rest and be at peace and know that you already took care of that. Now it's time to give yourself that peace that you need and give yourself the time. There is no rush. You're all set. JR, as I listen to you and Vanessa talk, I realize that this estate planning, this legacy planning can be complicated. There are a lot of DIYers out there, people who want to try to do things themselves. Is this the kind of thing you can manage on your own? Is it possible? We would say it's better to have something rather than nothing. So if you go onto a website and at least have a, a will and trust in place, it's better than having nothing. Having said that, as you get closer to retirement or build up larger amounts of wealth, it's very important to have an integrated plan. And one thing we spend a lot of time with, with families is whether you're middle of your career or you're toward the end of your life. What a lot of families don't spend a lot of time on is comparing between generations. 
because we find so much wealth is lost between generations just through lack of communication. So it's good to have something in place, but the next step in, in what we spend, and I think advisors bring a lot of value, is comparing generations and making sure there's family coordination and communication. So Vanessa, there are a lot of people listening right now. Of course, they can go read your book, Family Value at Risk, but are there some good resources out there if you are on step one, if you're listening to this podcast and saying, okay, I really got to get my life in order. I've been putting it off till now. What's the first thing to do? We made it easy. <laughs> I think it's in chapter four. There's a tear-off sheet. So that was what we thought would be a dynamic tool to have in the book. It's not just read through the whole book while you're sipping on a pina colada. <laughs> it's read, learn how, tear off the sheet, and then do your own. Because this is what takes us over that step of the decision paralysis that we talk about so much. Just do it. It's right there. There's a part in the book where we tell you, put it down. Now go to the next step, right? Because we understand that that's what everyone needs is someone to hold your hand, walk you through the process, tell you it's time to take the next step. So that is what I'm hoping everyone who's listening will do. Know where you are today and maybe start with that net worth statement. Just jot down those items. It's a snapshot in time. But believe me, when you take a look at that, you probably will be off by a few digits, but having it in front of you is perfect. So that way, you know what you need to do next. So JR, Vanessa's talking about calculating your net worth. You put some examples in the book in a tear-off sheet to help people understand how to do that. Other first steps, JR, especially if you're listening to this right now, you've not done any of the work. How do you jump in per se? Well, if you definitely have minor children, the will is critically important, just given what, what we talked about. And then just understand those simple things as to whom you might want to take over from a financial perspective and from who's going to raise your children long-term perspective. And just have those those few items that, that kind of get you on track to get those, those wills done, which is very important with, with minor children. Another piece that I, I know we're kind of harping on those who haven't made any decisions. But I also want to talk to those that are listening that are thinking right now, I already did it. I'm perfectly fine. I'm here to tell you <laughs> it's time to review it because changes have happened. If you drafted this trust 10 years ago, believe me, take a quick read or I would say have a professional take a quick read and I'm sure you'll be able to find something in there that needs some kind of adjustment. I'll share a quick story, which is also in the book. And it's similar to yours, Doc. I was I had my estate plan in order, right? That's what I do for a living. I have to make sure everything's in order. I get on the airplane and I decided to do a family trip. And I mean, full-blown family, mother, father, both sisters, husbands, kids. What did I do? Mistake number one. The whole family's on the same airplane. I'll never do that again. Learn my lesson. Turbulence. Horrible turbulence, right? At this point, I'm talking about turbulence where people are crying on the flight. Lots of people. I was that person. I'm just sharing the truth. It was me. I was crying because <laughs> I'm so nervous. And then I'm holding my kids and we're praying. And what I learned from that was you don't only need a plan. 
you need to revisit that plan and have a plan, let's call it B or C. In your estate plan, it'll always say, this is my trustee. And if this person's not okay, then I have this trustee. And this is how everything flows down. It goes down a generation, right? If your trust was built, I want to say at least 20 years ago, the way they were drafted, they had an end. And by an end meant kind of next of kin. But then they they didn't know where they went to after that. They The assumption was that it went from parents to kids, from kids to grandkids. And I'm sure everyone will outlive it. No, that's not true. Because if you have one child and that one child had no kids, where does your estate go? So after I got off the airplane and came home, I was like, I need plan C. Because everybody on that plane was everyone that was going to inherit everything. There was no one left. I made them get on one plane. (laughs) So plan C, please. Everyone who's out there listening, you might have plan A and plan B. Let's think of plan C. I love this idea and this visual, Vanessa, of you sitting on the airplane with turbulence, because I think it's a great metaphor for what happens in our lives. Just like in my introduction, we never expected my dad to die, but he did. And there is always going to be unexpected turbulence in our lives. We always worry about our wealth being at risk. But I think it's more than that. As you guys talk about, it's your family value as a whole at risk. It is your estate and your legacy. And I think if we fail to think about it, we certainly can suffer some of those consequences. So I wanted to thank you guys for being on the show. Vanessa, why don't you tell us what's up next in your life? And then JR can tell us where we can find you on the internet if we want to know more. What's next? I think right now with the business, Continue to be able to shape the team to have these same beliefs that JR and I have to make sure our legacy continues to be able to help families with their legacy and making sure that that continues. And JR, where can we find you if we want to know more? And certainly, where can we buy your book, Family Value at Risk Inclusive Communication to Pass on Your Family's Wealth and Legacy? You can find us on our website. Hightower Advisors under the Learner Group. Vanessa and I are both on LinkedIn, so you can follow or track us through LinkedIn. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram as well. Our book's available on Amazon.com. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Vanessa Martinez and J.R. Gondek. That's a wrap. Before we get to the community segment, I just wanted to remind you that if you are enjoying the podcast, listening every Monday and Thursday, and want to continue the conversation, the best place to do that is in our Facebook group. Go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There you will be able to discuss similar topics to what you hear on the podcast. We talk about personal finance, what's going on in the news, you name it, we talk about it there. It is a great place to find community. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Check us out and become part of our community, which reminds me the community segment today is going to be a little different. I did an interview with my son, Cameron, on Fireside. That is a new platform, which you'll be hearing a lot about in the future. I will be recording episodes there hopefully every Friday. It's like live radio with an audience. This was a trial run for us. I interviewed my son talking about our family values and what 
it's like to grow up with me as a father interested in the financial independence retire early community what he's learned from me my wife and then also being the editor of the earn and invest podcast cameron is 16 years old i hope you enjoy it he has a lot of important things to say about money and growing up take a listen Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first live fireside episode of the Earn and Invest podcast. We have the conversations that help you earn and invest in your future so you can make the right decisions today. We're planning on having live fireside chats every Friday at 10 a.m. Central. That's 10 a.m. CST with our first one starting next week. I'm your host, Doc G. And this morning, we're going to talk about the secret financial lives of teenagers. While there's many books out there that really help us learn about bringing up financially responsible and savvy kids, there are very few chances we get to talk to a teenager live about their experiences with money. So today I'm going to welcome my son, Cameron G, to the show. He is a high schooler, the chief technology officer of the G family, and also the audio editor of the Earn and Invest podcast. Cameron, welcome to Fireside and welcome to Earn and Invest. Thanks for having me. Cameron, let's jump right into it. For all those people listening, tell us how old you are and what grade of school you're in. So I am 16 and I'm finishing my sophomore year of high school. Yeah, this is the end of the school year, about to be a junior. Tell me, Cameron, do you and your friends, do you learn about money in school? Is that something that's taught in classes? So there is a graduation requirement of some sort of financial education. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm interested to see what that's like. I was about to say, do you have any idea what some of the offerings are? Do they like teach you about the stock market or what have you? I I would hope so. My guess is that there's a lot of, you know, tax stuff, well, maybe investing, maybe a little bit, but I I don't know. Yeah, it's good to know that they at least require one class. Do you and your friends talk about money? I remember you and I were chatting way back when, when GameStop was a thing. And you and I have also talked about cryptocurrency. Is this something you're hearing your friends talk about at school? Less about crypto, but more about investing in these stocks that seem to go up and down very rapidly, like uh, GameStop. And they seem to um, think that it's a good idea to invest in those. And I, I highly disagree from at least what I know, but it seems too volatile to ever make money on such or even consider you know, investing in that. It's an interesting question because you, as the audio editor of the Earn and Invest podcast, really get to listen to financial talk a few times a week. And you've edited, I think, almost 100 episodes. Do kids really know what they're talking about? Like, are they going out and studying these stocks and really understanding on understanding them? Or do you think it's more of a fad? I think it's definitely more of a fad. They try to uh, make money based on what people say they're going to make money on without doing actual research into it. So it's kind of some, they look on the surface, but they don't dig deeper trying to find, you know, better ways or 
yeah, they don't they don't dig any deeper. They try to go for the easy money, as I think some people would call it. And I'd love to say they're doing that because they're kids, but anyone involved in personal finance knows that adults do the same thing as well. As you're hearing your friends talk and when you're at school, do you get the feeling that your financial upbringing at home is different than theirs? I do. I think I've been introduced to more of these different topics, whereas they might see investing in these, I think you just called it a fad, but in these fads, I would call it irresponsible, (laughs) but I guess that's how you learn. So I think I've been introduced into kind of what's making good decisions when it comes to investing, where to put your money. A lot of my friends also, they just, they don't manage their money. (laughs) So I think that's very different. Yeah, when you're talking about fads, we're really talking about this idea of speculation versus investment. Certainly, hopefully what you've been learning by editing the Earn and Invest podcast is we are big fans of investment and not necessarily huge fans of speculation, although I think it has a place in any asset allocation. You come at this with a little foreknowledge. Tell me, do you feel like we talk about money a lot at home? Kind of. It's never like talking about budgeting or, and maybe, maybe you do that when you're not around me, but I think there's a lot of talk to me about how to manage my money, but not actually how you do it. We've had conversations about how to manage my money, but I don't think we dig any deeper than that usually. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I've done a lot of thinking about this too, as a parent, You know, I think the three ways to teach children about money, one is didactic teaching where you sit them down and you give them lectures about money. And I would bet you would say, Cameron, that we probably don't do a lot of that at home. Correct. I think another way is through modeling, which is that kids get to see what their parents do and then eventually they copy them later in life, which is exactly what I did with my own parents. My own parents were business owners and real estate entrepreneurs. So I became the same, not because they necessarily taught me about that, but because I saw them do it. And then the last is experiential learning, which is allowing children to have the chance to experiment and either succeed or fail. Talk to me about modeling. Do you feel like we as parents include you in some of our financial decisions or do you get to see how we operate out there in the world, whether it's in business or real estate or what have you? I definitely see you guys demonstrate all these skills. I mean, you manage a bunch of condos, so I'll go with you to those. I'll see how that works. That and you just let me, I think your whole system for letting me manage my own money So I kind of copy what you do, or at least I try to. I want to talk in a moment about the system for which you manage money. We do an interesting thing with allowances. We're going to talk about those in a moment. But tell me, what do you think you glean more from? Do you think it would be better if we sat down and taught you, for instance, about real estate? Or do you think you get more from watching us do these real estate transactions and going with us to the closings and meeting the new tenants? I think I learn more from watching you guys do it, but I also tend to learn by myself. So I'll do my own research into stuff on YouTube or the internet, and I'll try to go deeper. But I think you guys do a really good job showing me, you know, the basics that I should know by now. And do you feel that impetus to go out and learn more? It sounds like self-study is big for you. Yeah, I definitely 
feel like it's very important for me to go out and learn some of this stuff by myself and try to get some of the bigger ideas, try to get ready for when I have to budget myself and manage my own money at a much larger scale. Let's talk more about managing your own money. We have a funny way of doing an allowance here in the G household. Tell us or tell the listeners, what do we do with your allowance and how it plays out through the year? Yeah, so I get around, I think it's $10 a week, but it's all given upfront every year. So that's $520 a week. And I'm supposed to budget that for all my expenses. So that's any junk food I want, that's clothes, shoes, anything that I want that's not, you know, regular food or any necessity. And tell us a little bit about what you've learned with these budgeting experiences. I remember an episode where you dropped your phone into a river and lost it and then had to decide if you had enough budget or not to buy a new one. Yeah, so there's definitely times that I've wanted something that I I just, it didn't make sense for me to buy it. So I think I've learned what I really need versus what I want. I think as I get older and I have a job now, so I can, I can kind of dip more into that and get the stuff that I also want. But through this, I've kind of learned exactly what I need. I know how often I'll need it. And I, I really don't, I try not to buy clothes and such just for like fun. I, I, I try to lengthen the lifespan of my clothes as long as possible. Do you feel like we're kind of a frugal household? I'm getting this feeling that people listening would say, boy, you guys tend to stretch your dollar. I think you guys definitely do. I think I'm very different, but <laughs> I think you guys definitely are very frugal. Tell me about that. How are you different? Uh, you are not a spendthrift. I definitely buy a lot more than you guys do. <laughs> I tend to spend my money on computers, iPads, anything new that comes out in the electronics world, which is very different because you guys will keep the same stuff for years. Yeah, there's really two ideas behind saving money, right? One is that you make tons of money and the other is frugality. We as your parents... I think we do spend money, but certainly we do like to save and make our things go far. It sounds to me as you grow up and you're looking at how you want to manage your money, you're really going to concentrate more on the making money side since you like to spend it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And you tend to like to buy things like electronics and toys, et cetera, stuff that neither your mom or I necessarily have a huge interest in. Yeah, but I also tend to kind of budget that out. I tend to not, or I buy cheaper versions of other stuff that I can save a little money on so that the stuff that I want instead of, so that the things I want, I can spend more money on because I don't really care about other stuff as much. So I kind of try to find the cheapest way I can buy other stuff that are still good quality so that I have more money and I can still save. You mentioned earlier that you were making some money. Tell us about your history of money making. How have you made money in the past and what do you make currently? So in the past, I have worked for my neighbors. I still do a little bit of that. I used to mow their lawn, shovel their snow and such. Now I, uh, I edit this 
podcast and <laughs> that's a couple hours a week, but I've got it streamlined. So I make, you know, $60 a week for a couple hours of work. And you've kind of had a side hustle of buying and selling and fixing up electronics. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I don't know if it's made me a ton of money. There have been times where it has, but I would, I would think that I've maybe made slightly more money than breaking even on that one. Now you are 16. You're going to be going into junior year next year. Have you started thinking about college and specifically how college is going to be paid for? I have. So I'm lucky enough that I think you guys will definitely help me with that. But I also realize that I'm going to have to figure out a way to pay for all my other expenses, like food and stuff like that. So my 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 goal is to get a job. And we've even talked about this idea of you getting a job in high school. And you said, Dad, none of my friends are getting jobs Tell me about your feelings about working. I mean, for instance, you're 16. You could go out and get a job in a restaurant or get a job like that. That never has seemed to be of interest to you. It's always kind of scared me to do those kind of jobs. And maybe it would be different if I got one. But I've always been kind of the type of person to want to do a job that's maybe not in a store. So I, I would want... like. Editing this podcast is a perfect example. I would want to do a job where I can either use creativity or try to, I don't know, I was thinking about working in like a phone repair shop, maybe. I think that's a, where I don't, I don't like coming into contact with people a lot. I'm kind of shy occasionally. Do you think that's a generational thing? Like, do you think the people you go to school with are going to come out into the work world and feel the same way where they're much more interested in virtual work or at least work that's not as much face-to-face? I definitely think people are moving to want to do less of that. I think our generation, or at least my generation, really likes online stuff. I have a lot of friends that like online school. Uh, I, I tend to disagree usually, but this is one of the times where I agree with the idea that coming face to face is worse than uh, being online or in the back of a store. So let's talk about kind of future career for you. Have you thought much about what you want to do for a living? And I guess first and foremost, can you parse out, do you plan on being an employee or would you rather be an entrepreneur? I'd rather be an entrepreneur. I assume that at some point for at least, you know, some time I'm going to have to work for someone. But the field I'm looking at going into is some sort of electrical engineering. So I'd like to, you know, get into college, a good college, and become an engineer. And eventually, do you think you would be inventing things? I know you have a profound interest in electronics, phones, iPads, computers. Do you think you would actually be creating hardware at some point? I would like to. I'm, I like more hardware than software, so I'm hoping at some point I can create some hardware. A lot of people, especially when I was growing up, we really looked at what we were going to do for a living as a means to meeting our financial goals You're 16 now, but at some point, obviously, you're going to go to college and become an adult. What do you think your financial goals are going to be? I think my goal, my biggest goal is just to get out of college and work 
whatever makes me the most money so I can save as much as possible the first couple of years I'm out of college. And so after that, I my goal is to, you know, kind of figure out or find some nonprofit, some technology nonprofit that I can work for and just, yeah, I want to, I want to join that sort of thing in the end. So let me reintroduce you for people who are just joining us. I am Doc G, the host of the Earn and Invest podcast. I am interviewing my son, Cameron G. He is our chief technology officer of the G household. He is a high schooler and he edits my podcast, Earn and Invest. And we are talking about the secret financial lives of teenagers. Cameron, you just mentioned that you probably want to take a job right when you get out of college or when you finish graduate school, what have you, where you make a lot of money. It's an interesting statement because I know, for instance, when I came out of college, went to medical school, I wanted to be a doctor. It really, for me, was more of a passion play than a money play. Being a doctor obviously makes money, but it was something I was very passionate about. Do you think you'll be passionate about that first job or are you really looking for a moneymaker? I think I if possible, I'd like to be passionate about it, but I, I also want it to be a moneymaker because I'd like to do whatever I'm passionate about later and try to then enjoy that as much as possible. Where did you come up with that philosophy? I, I, for people who don't know, Doc, I'm Doc G, and I am part of the Financial Independence Retire Early community. I was a physician who pretty much made my wealth at the beginning of my career and then realized that I didn't have to be a physician anymore as I got more and more burned out through working. Cameron, did watching my trajectory at work kind of give you this philosophy about kind of making the money up front so that you could do what you want? I definitely think you heavily contributed to that idea because I see you doing a lot of stuff that you really like doing now. So that's my goal to to be able to, by the time I'm your age, be able to do basically whatever I feel like doing. Yeah, hopefully before you're my age, because I'm getting kind of old there. So I mentioned I'm part of that FIRE community. Tell me what you think about financial independence retire early. I think it's cool. I definitely agree with a lot of things that are said. I would like to retire early. And my my idea of retiring is kind of quitting a high paying job and instead working at some low paying nonprofit. So I, I definitely think it's really cool. So I'm using that as a guide. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. I haven't <laughs> yet entered very far. Tell me, have you ever heard other people talking about the fire movement? I believe you follow certain people on YouTube, but is it something you hear about at school? Do you ever hear other kids talking about that? I definitely do not. I don't think I've once heard it at school. On YouTube, though, I, I, I watch people on YouTube like Graham Stephan. So do you think kids your age think about this kind of stuff? I mean, again, you've been exposed to it, I think, at an early age through our family. But what do you think other teenagers think? Do you think they consider these kind of things or are worried about what they're going to do when they grow up? I don't. I think a lot of kids are taught that you save up for something and you save all your money for it. And then you immediately, instead of saving any of it, you immediately buy after you saved up whatever you're saving up for instead of actually saving any money. And then this process kind of uh, goes in circles. But the problem with that is you're never going to 
you're just going to keep going in circles. You're never actually going to save any money. So it's just going to be a constant struggle to stay on top of things. Yeah, the so-called hedonic treadmill, right? The more you spend, the more things you buy, the more you want, so to speak. Has knowledge of this stuff curbed your enthusiasm for buying things at all? I mean, one thing about the FIRE movement that you see is there really is a lot of concentration on spending wisely. Brad Baird of the Choose FI podcast calls it being a valuist. Have your spending habits curved? (laughs) Not really. I mean, I I definitely (laughs) save money now. So I'm trying to do it responsibly if that's possible. So I put aside money to save and I've been trying to invest more. So my hope is that I can still spend less and save more, but still buy stuff. How do you decide how much to save? Like, do you have a percentage or amount or do you just kind of save when you feel like it? I kind of save when I feel like it. I try to have like end goals for the year, how much money I want to have. Looking to the future, what do you think wealth will mean to you? Like, what will it feel like to be wealthy? You know, what is your conception of what that is? I think probably living somewhere that I like, maybe not working the whole day, maybe working half a day, three quarters of, you know, when there's daylight, maybe nine to three or something like that. To a point where I don't have to really stress out about money. That I think that's the ultimate goal for a lot of people, not stressing out about money. So I, I would definitely agree with that one. So your conception of wealth has very little to do with actually a net worth or a cash value. Yeah, I don't think that's important if you can do what you want. Tell me about the role of investing. You know, we at home talk, mom and I do a lot about investing our money. You've heard me talk about the power of compounding. Do you think investing will play a big role in you building wealth? I definitely think it will, because I think one of the biggest reasons is it's not, it's a motivator for me to save money. If I can like kind of watch it grow so I can put it in there, I can slowly watch it grow. And, it, and I'm not going to want to take money out of it. So I think it's a great way to kind of save money and gain from it more than just having it sit in a bank. So I, I plan to do more of that over the next few years. And I really like to, you know, get into that and learn about it. I want to talk more about investing in a moment, but just invite anyone in the audience, if you have questions for me, Doc G, or for my son, Cameron, about the secret financial lives of teenagers, feel free to come up on stage. All you have to do is request, and I will let you up. Cameron, I remember really actually into my 30s, I didn't really understand investing, which is funny because I grew up with parents who invested in the stock market their whole lives. Yet to me, it felt like kind of a black box. Tell me about how you feel about investing right now. Is it something you feel like you have a grasp on or does it feel amorphous like it did to me pretty much most of my life? So I think I have a grasp on the basics. So I know how it works. I don't know any any of the more in-depth tricks or any of that stuff at the moment, but that's what I hope to learn. Do you think, or does it feel like it's a very complicated thing to you just from the outset? Eh, Not really. I mean, it's a little complicated, but 
I think if you learn about it, which I haven't put in, I don't think enough time yet to really get down to it. But I think if you put in a bunch of time to it, it seems not too hard. So let's look towards your future. What do you think are going to be the biggest hurdles to your financial dreams? Like what is going to get in the way for you, do you think? I honestly have no idea. I haven't maybe getting a job. I think it's definitely harder to get a job nowadays, or at least that's what I've heard. As soon as I get out of college, I'm going to have to, you know, go and get a job. That kind of scares me, but I, that's what I want to do. So I will do it. It's an interesting question. Like we as adults watch the news and get stressed out, right? As the economy goes up and goes down, as the job market goes up and down. Are these things you find yourself paying attention to? Like when you're watching the news, do you pay attention to what's happening to the economy or the job market? I definitely pay attention to it, but I don't really bring it back to my life because I'm just not affected by it at the moment because I'm not, because I know eventually any money that I have in the stock market or invested will rebound at some point. So I'm not worried about that. As for the job market, I'm, I'm just so far away in like my eyes from having a big job that I don't apply it to myself. So let's look at your generation in general. What do you think your generation gets wrong about money? Like as you look around your friends, what do you think they are totally messing up? So what I previously said definitely applies here about people spending money on things that they've, so they save up for money for something and then they immediately put all their money into it. And then most of my friends, if not all of them, none of them manage their money. I think it's very important from what you guys have taught me to actually see what's coming in and going out and kind of having a bank account where you can manage it yourself. Because I think that's what, if you're thrown into life and you have never seen how a bank account works or credit cards or debit cards, I think you're going to end up making a lot more mistakes than if somebody kind of teaches you on a smaller scale. And if you make a mistake, then it's a lot smaller than if you lose. <laughs> it's like losing $1,000 versus $10,000 or $100 versus $10,000. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, when you're young, the stakes aren't as high. Speaking of credit and debit cards, you really pushed us when you turned 14 to get a debit card. And I remember feeling a little reticent. On the other hand, it really helped you learn about how to use your money. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that, that definitely was helpful. I've definitely learned about that. And then I think when I was 15, I convinced you to let me get a credit card. So I could get those rewards. And I definitely learned about that as well. There is a whole nother story, which is credit card hacking or hacking the rewards. Uh, that, that's a little next level. You might be a little too young to be starting to get multiple rewards credit cards. But I get a feeling if it can be done, you will eventually do it. Yeah, right now I'm just getting I spend a lot of my money at the Apple store. So I got an Apple credit card. So I, every time I spend money there, I get like 3% back. So I'm thinking more about your generation. I remember it was always the goal of us is that we wanted to be as successful or more successful than our parents. 
as you look at your generation and the generation of parents that had you, do you think that you guys will be able to have as much financial and economic success as you get older? I think we definitely will, but I don't think we care as much about, you know, beating any previous, like, I I don't care if I'm more or less successful than you. It really doesn't matter to me as long as I have what I need. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I'm from Generation X. And, you know, if you look at the stereotypes of Gen X, we tend to put our heads down. We're kind of workaholics. We kind of push our way through. You are more of the Gen Z generation. And for you guys, things like social concerns and happiness really seem to play a greater role. Like, it seems to me your generation really wants to A, have a good work-life balance and B has concerns for things like our planet and for the well-being of our people, maybe more than my generation does. I would definitely agree with that. I think we definitely want to undo some of the stuff that's been done to the earth. (laughs) I think that's one of the biggest things that we want to change. We want to get rid of emissions. I'm big into uh, electric cars. I think we definitely want to have lives that aren't, you know, 100% work either. Yeah, I remember being your age, and I think I had anxiety about making a living and anxiety about money. I get the feeling your generation is much more anxious about living in a good place. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm kind of scared about what Earth is going to look like in 20 or 30 years. It definitely is exciting to hear the next generation, especially because it seems like people like you understand what their financial needs are going to be, but then also are looking out to the world in general and making sure that we take care of it. I mentioned that you are the editor of the Earn and Invest podcast. You also have recently started your own podcast. Tell us about that. So I am going to start making a tech podcast. Just anything new in the tech world. And I haven't actually made a full episode yet. It's kind of hard getting getting stuff sorted out online. I can't just sit around. My friends that I'm going to do it with is in Arizona. So I can't just walk over to him and, you know, record it. So I have to figure that out. But my hope is to have kind of tech news podcast. And tell me about your feelings about podcasts as a medium. We are now on Fireside at this moment. Feels a little more like live radio. You've also put some stuff up on YouTube. Do you think you're going to like podcasting? I have no clue. (laughs) That's why I'm going to try it. Sounds fun. So anything else you want to tell everyone out there about the secret financial lives of teenagers? Anything unexpected? Anything you think we don't know? Because most of the people listening right now are older than you. Some of us are parents. Anything we don't understand about your financial needs? I think that a lot of older people don't get our generation in the way that we want to kind of make things better in general for everybody. And I think people take that as we don't want to focus on what we specifically are going to do, or each person is going to specifically do in the future. So we need to, or I think other people may need to kind of see what our end goal is instead of discredit us for, for not trying to build our own separate futures. 
I've definitely heard people say about the younger generations that they don't want to work as hard or they're not as driven. On the other hand, I've had the pleasure of knowing a lot of young people and there seems to be a lot of drive there. Like you don't hit me as a non-driven person, even though you talk about these greater societal needs. Yeah, I think we're more driven instead of to like jobs. I think we're more driven to problems like human rights problems, earth problems, instead of our own personal problems. Well, Cameron, I wanted to thank you for being here on Fireside with me for having this live conversation, as well as being on the Earn and Invest podcast. It is a pleasure to have you not only edit the podcast, but have someone I can talk to about how this next generation thinks about money. Clearly, the next generation is different than our generation. The kids of today have some different concerns. On the other hand, I think they can be just as financially savvy as their parents. And listening to you talk about money, I have these feelings that you're going to do a great job. And it's nice to know that you'll be out there being a responsible teenager and eventually a responsible adult when it comes to your money. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I wanted to thank my son, Cameron G. You can check us out at earnandinvest.com. We put out episodes every Monday and Thursday. These are next level conversations that help you earn and invest in your future so you can make the right decisions today. We will also be trying to show up on Fireside every Friday to live podcast or live record our episodes, which will then be released the week later. So hear it first live on Fireside or go to your favorite podcast player, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, what have you. Check us out, look us up, earn and invest. Thank you, everybody, and have a great weekend. Cool. Thank you, guys. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, no problem. Did you feel like you got to talk? It's with a book like yours. It's hard, right? Because I don't want to go too into depth. On the other hand, I want to skim some of the major issues. Did you feel like we were able to talk about some of the important points and things that you wanted to get across? And it was the same challenge with writing it too, because you don't want to get too in detail because you don't want to turn off, but you want to go high level enough. So I think it was a good conversation. I think starting with your story was perfect for this segment. It ties what people are forgetting that's the most important piece. So I thought that was perfect. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm very thoughtful about how I want to approach these conversations. So when I get something like, so for one is if I'm going to interview an author, I'm going to read the whole book because <laughs> not everyone does. Um, but I want to make sure that, that I've thought deeply enough to really tie in what what you have to say and why it's important. And so I really think a lot about what those introductions are going to be because I want to make sure that it relates. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed your book a lot. And, and I did also want to push you a touch just very gently on certain ideas like index investing and, yeah. and dividends, et cetera, because I know my community will be, will even though I don't think that's really the purpose of a lot of what you're talking about, I know my community will will be having those thoughts yes exactly so 
And I, I love those debates. I, I don't know how detailed. I didn't want to spend too much time because I could talk till I'm blue in the face about some of those. And I, I didn't want to get too detailed on some of that. Yeah, we um, because I started again, I don't really consider this a fire financial independence retire early podcast, but it kind of started that way. So you have a lot of people who love to dive into the weeds of dividends versus not dividends, right? I mean, how you could, mm-hmm. you know, discuss that for forever or index funds versus not index funds or even financial advisors versus no financial advisors. Yeah. I certainly have fallen over time on the on the camp of you need a decent amount of help to really do this right. And and obviously that's financial advisors and lawyers and CPAs. And I've definitely changed over time in my thoughts on that when I've realized how incredibly complex things can be, although I am still a fan of very simple investing. So I'm a big fan of index investing, but I also... I completely understand your approach of index versus single stocks because I do think the majority of people have trouble stomaching the ups and downs. And so I think that my understanding from what I read and from what you said is really you have kind of the safety valve approach. And I think that helps people emotionally manage kind of the ups and downs. Yeah, we're we're a little bit unique. We manage everything in-house. It gives us the flexibility to get in and out and not time the market per se. Yeah. Doing this across the board. Yeah. And we all, I mean, we all know that the problem is that the majority of us who don't do this for a living just don't have the time, energy, or right. resources to know what really true good value stocks are. Right. So if, if we all could, if we all knew that, right, we would just buy early and hold on forever and, and it would fulfill its purpose. But, but lots of us don't have the resources nor the stomach. Um, and so that's, that's something I've learned over time. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.